Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. If, and you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us in these spaces here this morning. Give us, O God, your Holy Spirit to illumine to us this word of God as we wrap up the flood narrative here at Liberty Collingswood. Thank you, O Lord, how we encounter the living Lord in this story and bring us forward from this story to the Lord Jesus, crucified and resurrected for us and for our salvation. Give us hope in him. Lord, some of us are coming full of faith this morning. Some of us full of doubt and skepticism. Some of us have had great weeks. Others of us have had really hard ones. Some of us feel like we're at the top of the world. Others at the bottom. Lord, would you lift us up? 
by your gracious and mighty hand. We pray even now by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Here at Liberty Collingswood, one of the things that we'll talk about periodically is how stories shape our lives. Not just a little story you hear over there or a little story you hear over there, but uh, sometimes submerged in our minds and hearts, the baseline narratives that we tell ourselves, that we live by, that helps us to figure out what we do when experiences come our way, whether positive or negative. So it's kind of like this. Whether you think you're a winner or a loser, that affects how you think about things when things come your way. Whether you think I'm a good person or a bad person, that affects how you interpret things that happen to you. Whether you think, and not that we'd admit this to ourselves, but we should look in the mirror, I'm better than other people. That affects how we interpret our own realities. Or I'm worthless. I'm worse than other people. That affects. Or if our baseline narrative is things in my life are supposed to get better. Or things in my life are supposed to get worse. Or things for the world in general are supposed to get better. Or things are supposed to get worse. And how we think about those things, how we interpret them, is based on that story, based on that narrative frame. And here at Liberty Collingswood, again, we like to ask the question that are big questions. What's the story of life? What is all of this? From the little details, to the little successes, to the little frustrations, to the giant sorrows, to the huge hopes. What is all of this about? What's the story of humanity? About 10 years ago now, I read a book with a character that I think captures what maybe many of us here in the West might feel about these things. The book, Jennifer Egan, A Visit from the Goon Squad. She's back in the news again, came out with a sequel to that book recently, The Candy House. But this is what one of these characters said, and it stayed with me. She, one of the characters, was writing a story of redemption, of fresh beginnings and second chances. Redemption, transformation, how she wanted these things. Every day, every minute, didn't everyone. Isn't that what we want? We want things to be better. We want redemption. We want transformation. We want restoration. Behind every success and every sorrow, we are longing for things to be different and better that life can be transformed for the good. And on the surface, the character in the story, A Visit from the Goon Squad, that desire for redemption and transformation, that has a good bit in common with what the Bible says, the Christian story. The Christian story, whether you read the first page of the Bible or the last or any of the pages in between, it's a restoration story. It's a redemption story for all things from beginning to end. And it's previewed here in these verses. As the flood wraps up, as the waters recede, we see God's will for a good and flourishing world. And we're invited to enter in, to believe in Jesus and be a part of this story. 
But here's the rub. If you want to be part of God's story in Jesus, you've got to let God write the story. You can't be your own author. We're not good enough for that. But God is. And in the story of the scriptures, it's not just a redemption story. It's not just a restoration story, but it's a reckoning story. A reckoning with evil. And God has done something about that too. And that's a more difficult story sometimes. I think the character here in Visit from the Goon Squad, there's the longing for transformation, restoration, redemption, not as much of the reckoning part. But God's story here is harder, but it's better. So let's talk in three parts from here about God's redemption story. Let's talk about restoration. Then we're going to talk about a substitute story. Then we're going to talk about a grace story. So three parts. Restoration, and then substitute, and then grace. Like I said a moment ago, the flood waters are finally going down. If this is your first, first Sunday with us, either here in the room or online, we've been going through the book of Genesis. A lot of stories in the book of Genesis at the, at the beginning related to the flood. Finally, we're back on dry land again. And this is the second chance for the world. The floods destroyed everything. But here we go again. It's almost as if Noah and his family, like a second Adam and a second human family, repopulating, going out again. It's going to be great this time. And God is going to be more patient with evil as well. Verse 21 of Genesis 8. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. There's that reckoning with evil. We'll talk more about that. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. All of those rhythms are being reestablished again. And at least as I read the section of scripture that I read to you a moment ago when you were standing up, I see in this passage, one of the ways to summarize it is that God is fiercely and ferociously for life. Let life teem once again. Let life flourish. We see God giving our first parents, our second first parents, Noah and his family and his wife, be fruitful and multiply. Verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Or verse 7, again, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Just like God told Adam and Eve way back in Genesis chapter 1. And God has said, now as well, I am going to sustain life anew. 9-2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And God also said, I'm going to protect life too. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There's a Bible scholar that said, reading about this passage... This is about life. Klaus Westermann is his name. Underlying the history of nature and the history of mankind is an unconditional divine yes. A divine yes to all life. 
that cannot be shattered either by any catastrophes in the course of history, by the mistakes, corruption, or rebellion of people. God's promise remains rock certain as long as earth exists. And we wrestled a little bit, and I heard from some of you earlier on in the story of the flood, hey, the, the flood's kind of hard because God destroys a lot of people and a lot of stuff. How do we wrap our minds around this? How is this God good? And I heard that Liberty Youth, you were asking some of these same questions. Wrestled with that some. I would only say here briefly that if you struggled with those things, I get it. Here we see God anew committed to the goodness and flourishing of life. This is a good God that is promising to preserve his creation once again. And in the history of humanity, all of the stories that we tell, life wins. That's the best. Last night with the family, I saw the new Marvel movie, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. It was actually better than the reviews. The reviews were kind of mixed. I thought it was great. Some of the negative reviews were, this movie seems a little bit comic, little bit comic booky. And my response is, well, you realize that the source, but it was fine. It was, it was a great movie. And so I'm a Marvel guy, but one of my favorite comic books that I've ever read is a graphic novel from the mid-90s called Kingdom Come, written by a guy named Mark Wade, painted art all the way through by a guy named Alex Ross. And it's superheroes when they get older in the DC universe. And at one point, there's this disagreement between Superman and Batman, but there's this one human figure who happens to be a preacher that's trying to get Superman and Batman back on the same page. And he says, Batman and Superman, you guys are not like each other in a lot of ways, but there's one thing that you have in common, and this is why you need to work it out and get back together to save the world. You don't want anyone to die. You don't want anyone to die. Superman for all of your light, Batman for all of your darkness. You don't want anyone to die. And so I would encourage you to be for life in similar ways. Whether it's your home or your workplace or your community, be for life. That's awesome. And it, it's a lot of little things that add up to more. If you live close to Collingswood, show up at our farmer's market in a small way. That's being for life. Sadler's Woods next door in Haddon Township. There was a cleanup day yesterday. If you're in Haddon Township, do that. Contribute, whether in your home spaces or other spaces that you're in, add sunshine to the room. Be for life. Was it Charlie Brown? I forget the old cartoon when somebody's in a bad mood, when there's a little storm cloud over the person. It's like, oh, we got to avoid that person because that person's a storm cloud. Don't be the storm cloud person. Be the sunshine person. Don't be a pillow person. The pillow person is a type of person where you have to treat him, with her or him or her with a pillow all the time because, oh, we don't want to get him mad. Is this a good day or a bad day for this person? It's always kid gloves all the way down. Just be for life. And at a larger level, be somebody that cares about the vulnerable. Keep thinking about refugees all in our midst. How can we do more? Keep thinking about for the oppressed, people that are less advantaged than you are, people that have less money or resources than you do. Discriminated against, distressed, anyway, what are you doing? And I'll tell you that this is a Bible passage that I've preached on a couple times before in my years of ministry, and this is the second time this sermon series that I've gone back to some old notes to see, hey, what did I do with this passage before? 
And this Beef for Life section was one that I had written years and years ago. But admittedly, there's a couple contemporary headlines that, that, that ping my radar as I think about something like this. One is that we're grieving the shooting that occurred in Buffalo over this weekend. An act of white supremacy against people of color, which is just wrong. That is something that we need to be against and say that is really, really wrong. And emotions are running really high again as it relates to abortion. I, I preached actually both on how the image of God means, in my opinion, as I read the scriptures, that we should be against racism and pro-life. That's October 10th, if you want to go back and listen to that sermon. I was going to say more about the royal related to abortion again. I'm going to put that in the podcast this week. It was one of those things where people feel so strongly that if I say a little bit about it, I feel like I'd need to say a lot. I just wanted you to know that the Bible continues to speak to some really hard things that we need to continue to wrestle with. Meanwhile, be for life. Be for life. And I'll say, even though there are some areas of disagreement in different ways, I think whether you're from the north or south, east or west, right side of the political spectrum, left side, rich, poor, whatever it is, hopefully in a big picture way, we'll agree, religious or not religious, we should be for life. Life good. Not life, not good. But if you're somebody who's still working through spiritual realities or might be skeptical towards some of these things, thank you for being here and being in our midst to engage that direction just a little bit right now. Trace it back to the source. Life is good because God made it. And it's going somewhere. What we see here in Genesis 8 and 9, the world that God recreated is the same stinking, spinning rock that we are still on. The same soil upon which we're walking, the same air that we're breathing, and it's the same heavens and earth that are going to be recreated when Jesus comes back, when life wins. The Apostle Peter says at the end of his second letter, but according to his promise, God's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's where all of this is going. And if life wins, that's awesome. Be for life now. But if not, if all of this is meaningless and going nowhere, I think it's fair to ask the question, why are we bothering? Why are we putting so much effort into all of this stuff? Making the rounds on the internet this week, article and interview in Vanity Fair, when the person interviewed is Kelly Williams Brown. Maybe you saw the article. She wrote the book on adulting, literally. About 10 years ago, she wrote a book called Adulting, when it's a young millennial person trying to figure out how to be an adult. She's written a couple of books since then. This article was catching up with her, and kind of the thing that she was talking about is being a human being is actually harder than I thought when I, when I wrote the book 10 years ago. I've, I've had a lot of hard experiences. And she's somebody that... that I think is just a, a secular person. And in the article, in the interview, she talks about how it's really hard if I think that all of this is ultimately meaningless and going nowhere, how to keep going in the present. And very revealing, this is what she said. I lie to myself. I'm just like, you know what? If I'm just a nihilist, what's the point of anything? Why wouldn't I just go out to the desert and curl up into a ball and dry out and die? And I'm not trying to pick it all on 
this author. In fact, I'm, I'm thankful for the honesty. But in a more general way, I appreciate how she's saying, for me to get through the day, get through my life, make meaning in a meaningless world, I'm just being honest here, I've got to make stuff up. Or else it doesn't make any sense. And I'll have plenty of conversations with skeptical friends of mine, and I appreciate the dialogue where I'll be told, Jim, what you're believing in, all this God stuff, all this Bible stuff, totally irrational. I would say that critique is actually a two-way street. When Kelly Williams Brown here is saying, for me to say that I'm trying to live with purpose in my life, that is completely irrational. And that's why I need to lie to myself just to get through. And she, she, dove, she, she does give some reasons. A couple of them, she says, well, life is really bad, but it's bad in new and different ways. And so there's at least some variety. And then also, if life is bad for me, maybe I can help when life is bad with other people. Th those are good reasons. And, and if they're, I'm not trashing them. But sooner or later, that undertow of meaningless comes back again. We can romanticize. Here we are just dancing on the edge of, of the abyss of meaninglessness. But that undertow is there. On the other hand, don't we think, everybody, it's good to be good. It's good to help people. It's good to be for life. And I would say, even if you're not somebody that believes in God or a follower of Jesus, that's the image of God in you and us barking, saying we should be for these things. And so that's the call to steward, to conserve human life, environment, to build wherever we are, life. What are you doing? What am I doing? So this is God's restoration story. We're called to be agents of God's restorative change in the world, to know God's restoration in our own life. That's part of what the story is. But it's also a substitution story. And this is where it gets interesting. Schol the one thing that scholars will ask, whether it's Jewish scholars or Christian scholars, when they go back to this passage, the one most quizzical or puzzling thing is right at the beginning in verse 20. First verse I read. Why is the first thing that, Abraham, that Noah rather does here, why is the first thing getting off the ark a sacrifice? Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Why do you do that? What if it was you? If it was me getting off the ark after 150 days, my first thing would have been for me to say, I call the bathroom. Right? But here we go. I'm going to make an altar and do sacrifices. And readers for millennia have said, why this? What's going on here? Well, this sacrifice, this is an offering of praise and thanksgiving to God. This is a prayer for continued blessing. All of those things are true, and we should bless God and ask that God would bless us and be thankful in our own lives. But as Genesis moves forward, there has been praise, there's been worship, there's been offering so far, but there's a couple of new details here. This is the first altar that we see in the Bible. Before this, nobody's made an altar so far. After this, everybody's going to make an altar. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the Levitical system of all that Old Testament law. All, if, if you have a thing for altars, there is a lot of altars in the Old Testament. This is the first. And the language here used for the sacrifice 
is very specifically that of burnt offering of an animal that is sacrificed. Now, we've had antecedents. Things have happened like this before. There was worship at the end of Genesis chapter 4. At that time, the author says, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain offered some type of animal sacrifice, but it's here you have an altar plus more specific language that anticipates the very type of animal sacrifices and burnt offerings that priests would make in Israel. Leviticus, a little bit later on, talks about an offering like this. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him, speak to the people of Israel. When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The purpose of these offerings, and this is a big Bible word, atonement, sacrifice and forgiveness. God accepts this blood instead of this blood, except this life instead of this life. And so what Noah is offering here is a substitute sacrifice. God, accept this blood, this life, so that we, this blood and this life, can live. In verses 5 and 6 of Genesis chapter 9, I read earlier, where God requires life for life, blood for blood, Earlier on in this passage, when that altar is built and the burnt offering is made, that's this principle already in action. There must be not only redemption and restoration, but for redemption and restoration to occur, there also must be a reckoning for evil. And this is what changes God's attitude towards everything. And I'll put changes God's attitude in quotation marks. And this is deep mystery here. God is sovereign. God is timeless. He's in control of all things. God's never caught by surprise or things that happen in the world that God doesn't ordain. Deep mysteries and all of that. But as a timeless God interacts in time with people, look at what happens in verses 20 and 21. Noah built the altar. That's verse 20. And when the Lord smelled, verse 21, the pleasing aroma, when God receives the offering, that's when he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And if we have Adam and Eve as our first parents, Noah as our second Adam, we remember the last Adam, where if Noah, if Abraham, if Isaac, if Jacob, if Moses, if Aaron, if all of those priests made sacrifices, including burnt offerings to God, outside of their bodies, Jesus, our high priest for all time, offered a sacrifice not outside of his body, but of his body. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, we read, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time all those who are being sanctified. Marvel. We talked about Moon Knight a couple of weeks ago, where he said at one point, the character, not broken, I just need a little help. Sometimes that's true. 
But then the Bible goes beyond that. Like Anna was saying earlier, the Bible is very honest about our pain and our sin. Sometimes it's not just that we're a little broken. We're very broken. We're completely broken. And we need God's help. And that's good news because we have our own mess, right? Sometimes it's not just everybody else's fault, but sometimes it's ours too. Sometimes my stories aren't all that great. And I need to own up to that. And when it's all everybody else's fault, maybe in that case, it's easier to say, I need help. But sometimes the problem with my story is me. What do I do then? That's when I need atonement. That's when I need forgiveness. For everybody listening, you need forgiven. I don't mean to be nasty or mean-spirited when I say that. But that's just being honest about our own mess and honest about our own junk. And you might say, I don't need a sacrifice. Like, I don't need atonement. I don't need forgiveness. Over 100 years ago, when scholarship started to go around the world and anthropology was a new field, one of the really interesting things that people started to discover, and, and the West Christian theologians started to process this too, they realized, wait a second, in every culture, ancient culture around the world, what are people doing? They're offering sacrifices to the divinity, to God. Again, whether north or south or east or west, there's a quote by a Dutch theologian in your reflections folder by Herman Bobbing that says that's that very thing. We are born with this sense that we've got, that we are born related to God. And why is it that all around the world, cultures that have never spoken to each other are saying, I don't know about you, but I feel like we better make an altar and start sacrificing to God because the guilt sticks. And in my opinion, this is why the good news of Jesus is hard. And the Apostle Paul says that there is an offense woven into the gospel. And it's the cross. You see, sociocultural issues, they'll come and go. And those things are always going to be offensive in different periods and in different ways. We don't try to be offensive. We don't go out of our way to be offensive. Just try to be faithful to scriptures, the whole third way walking worldview thing. But the core of it is not this sociopolitical issue or this cultural issue. The core of the offense of the Christian story is that it comes to us and says, you need forgiven or else we're still in our sins. And that is really hard. And again, if we're skeptical of that idea, isn't this why we work so hard so much on self-atonement in a lot of different ways? Even the phrase that's current, you gotta put in the work. From a certain perspective, that's self-atonement. And I'm not saying that putting in the work is bad. Putting in the work is good. We put in the work when it comes to our bodies. We put in the work when it comes to our relationships. We put in the work when it comes to our education. We put in the work when it comes to morality. And the racism reckoning that we've had over the past couple of years, it's a phrase that people used, and I use it too, putting in the work to, to wrap our minds around racism in our country. We'll put in the work as it relates to our own performance and getting the job that we need and the, the life that we need. But if that's all it is at that level, we're trying to work off, work off, work off, work off, work up, work up, work up, work up. And it's exhausting. And if that's all it is again, 
If we hit our targets, we're going to feel like we're better and superior than other people. Or if we don't, we're going to be shattered. And how would you know if you're putting in enough work? Or is it just more and more and more and more and more? Tradition has it that when the Buddha was dying, his last words were, never stop striving. If I was an original disciple of his, that would have been a bummer. And not to pick on Buddhism specifically, but Jesus' last words are, it is finished. The work has been done. We need a substitute, and it's by grace. This is a grace story, and this is where we'll wrap up the rainbow here in this story. God has promised by his covenant, I'm not going to destroy the world by flood again, verse 8 and 9 of chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And then we have the part about the rainbow. And with every living creature that is with you, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, verse 12, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And this rainbow, in English, we have different words for rainbow that's in the sky and the bow is in bow and arrow, like Hawkeye or green arrow or red arrow or arsenal. And other comic book heroes that shoot bows and arrows. So we have bow, that's for the bow, and then rainbow for the thing in the sky. In the original language here in Hebrew, same word for both. There's only one word, which is fine. And Jewish and Christian commentators for generations have said, this is an intentional play on a word. Where rainbow in the sky, we know what that is. But then also there's this bow that's pointing up, a symbol of war. And so now there's peace. There will not be war by flood upon the earth anymore. But that bow pointed up has made people think like this. Charles Spurgeon, preacher in London last century, or in the 19th century. Faith always sees the bow of covenant promise. He was talking about this passage. Whenever sense sees the cloud of affliction. God has a bow with which he might shoot out his arrows of destruction, but see it's turned upward. In this covenant sign, God is saying, when sin gets too much again, I will self-afflict. I will take the hit. The war of wrath upon sin will come upon my son. And that's why Jesus died on the cross for our sins and for yours. God took the hit for us. And so the substitution that we need is a gracious one through and through because Jesus paid that penalty for us to open the door, not only to forgiveness, but for all of the redemption and all of the restoration and all of the transformation that we see in this passage and all over the Bible as well. And this is meant to transform. It transforms our community. So it's not about us. It's about Jesus through and through. This transforms our mission. So we're not saying, hey, you should think about following Jesus so you should be good like me. Instead, it's we're a bunch of 
people that have a ton of issues and are messed up in a lot of different ways. We're trying to help each other and love each other well. We are broken and we need help. Come join us as we receive grace because we all need it. That's the equalizer that we need. And let it transform you. Whether you need some hope and restoration this morning, whether you need some transformation, whether you need some forgiveness, whether you need life, it's here for you in Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.